Some people resist change because they don't see where they belong in the outcome of that change process. And they become resistant and they start to block things. Um, other people resist change simply. And, and, that, and then it's the job of the change uh, of the CEO and the leadership team to bring that clarity to people. Because once you do, it starts to melt away. The resistance will start to melt away. So when we're looking at uh, how we deal with um, roadblocks, um, people roadblocks, we break them up into a very simple uh, analogy, which is the net promoter view of the world. We've got you know, advocates, neutrals, and detractors. And you're managing your stakeholders from that perspective. Uh, your job is to, is to actually look at the detractors and understand why are they behaving the way they're behaving, what are their beliefs, and, uh, and what are their concerns. And you can remove some of that purely by, as I said, really mapping out what their future is like in this organization and getting the right discussions from their line management down into those individuals. That will get rid of a lot of the concern, but it won't get rid of all of it. Welcome to this podcast, Demystifying Innovation by Agile Point. I'm your host, Shajil Suheb. The goal of this podcast is to reveal the best ideas that companies are using to become more agile and innovative in the enterprise world. We talk to the ones who are at the forefront of changing the way work gets done in medium to large companies. We interview world-class thinkers at the cross-section of business and IT. Every episode is packed with inspirations and action items that you can take and implement in your own enterprise environment. Check out the show notes at the bottom. Today I'm talking to Ian Duncan, who works at FTI Consulting. FTI is a business advisory firm based out of Washington with more than $2 billion in annual revenues. It has 6,000 plus employees and ranks among the top management consulting firms world over. Ian is FTI's Senior Managing Director and Transformation Leader for Digital Science in the EMEA region. In the spring of 2019, Ian, along with his colleagues, wrote an interesting paper called Why Transformations Fail? Time to Re-Examine Conventional Wisdom. It shares interesting and somewhat shocking numbers regarding how much money is wasted in big transformation programs. The paper states that one-third of money invested in transformations is wasted. Often, tens of millions of euros are misused. On a transformation program that invests 50 million euros, half of it goes to waste. The paper has a message that organizations do not change, people do, and therefore pay more attention to the human factors that influence change. As for Ian, he has a unique approach of managing large transformation programs. It is called commitment-based management. It's time to listen and learn. Yeah, I joined FTI a little over five years ago now. Mm -hmm. And um, what attracted me to that organization was the was a few things. One is that it, it was it we are a consulting organization but we consult differently we don't have a we are we don't have a pyramids uh, model whereby we have a lot of junior folks mm-hmm. our, our tagline and it really resonated with me and it's still today it's still still what keeps me energized is we are what we call experts with impact 
No, that's great. So, uh, yeah. what, what, which verticals and functions are you most experienced in? Like, what's, what's the most uh, verticals you have frequently serviced? It's a great question. I mean, because I've been involved in, in a number of different industries. And which ones are you loving with? Because I'm loving. They're, they're, they offer very different. It's funny you ask that question because they're, they're very different. And there's different management styles across different industries. Hmm. So if you go into the highly regulated industries, you've got a lot of um, top-down management and a lot of decisioning, which is centralized. And uh, insurance, uh, um, financial services, banks have a lot of experience working in those industries. Driving change requires a lot more of a, uh, a personal touch and a... And, and a and an, an understanding of the of the machinery of the institution itself and the mechanics of that and the motivations of the individuals around the organization, it can become very slow and difficult to drive change in large uh, regulated industries. Whereas if you move into highly um, you know, non-bureaucratic structures and different industries, more entrepreneurial driven change is very easy to execute, but can be a little bit chaotic. Yeah. So... Uh, we you, and I enjoy working across different management teams and different with different uh, mindsets as well, and you tend to find them uh, orientated towards different verticals as well. But I, I enjoy both, and it's it, you know you're getting really challenged when you're driving an, an institutional through a change process versus a small entrepreneurial organization that's growing rapidly that will try absolutely everything, but is very chaotic. So it, you try you apply different management styles to different uh, different uh, clients. Uh, I like both. Um, I really do enjoy both. And I suppose my experiences have been started off with banking and financial services, um, but I've worked in utilities. I've worked in construction organizations. I've worked with large uh, large institutions and, and some smaller ones as well. In the last two years, mm-hmm. um, I've had the pleasure of working for a nonprofit for a for-purpose business, helping them transform and introduce new services to them. I really enjoyed that experience as well. So I, I like the variety of, of the different um, organizations that I work with and the different verticals that they're associated with. That's great. That's great. So so if you have to know Ian up close, so who inspired you the most in the professional world? Yeah, without naming names, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to work with a few uh, people that have really helped shape my own thinking and my own um, beliefs around what what it's like to produce good work for, for yeah. myself and for clients. But there are there are a couple of examples. I was fortunate enough to work a few years ago with a CEO of a services business. Um, and his style and way of working was very much what we'd call a servant leadership style. Hmm. He was very accessible to all his people. And he was very respected, uh, and people would listen to him very different, very very intensively. He had a great ability to walk into a room, and people gravitate towards him. But but he was a very deep listener, mm. so he was able to to really get to the nub of the problem uh, and help his his own team solve those problems, but not necessarily enforce his opinion onto it as well. So a real, you know, I, I define a leader as someone who has a lot of followers. Yeah, and. <laughs> It's so simple to look at it like that, but not by title, but by people genuinely feeling that you can you can mentor and help them be be better at what they do. And this CEO had a natural ability to connect with people, and and he I did a whole transformation of his business. So first of us, one of his UK divisions, and then wider across his European network. Great. But what I found is that when I talked to all his people, they. 
they uh, were giving a huge amount of work, discretion, what I call discretionary effort. Hmm. They wanted to be there. They saw purpose in the organization and they connected with the uh, CEO's vision and they wanted to be successful. They wanted the organization to be successful. And they felt a sense of uh, belonging. And that's very hard to replicate. Yep. Uh, cool. Really hard to replicate. And it's obviously we're talking deep into the culture of what's, what, what, how, how, how he has built this up over time. But it's really, it's, for me, it began a, a journey for me to understand what type of uh, person I would like to aspire to. And I felt yeah. that that was a very good role model, a very good role model. And it keeps you humble and grounded. And I think that's really important. Do you think it becomes a bit difficult or challenging for servant leaders to guard their time as well? It's a great question. Um, and and the short answer is yes, it is hard because if you're accessible to people all of the time, people will, will pull on that. But also, I mean, look, you're not going to be a, uh, a CEO without making some really tough decisions and making right decisions. So, so it's, it's, so you have to have teeth as well, actually, is what I'm saying. So you have to be able to make some good judgments about what is important to you. And setting your stall out and setting the vision out and setting your, your, your program to execute upon that, um, you assemble your team around you. So people really fall into a sense of what is it they need to do. And you might have it in a job description or you may have it in, 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 uh, in some functional description of what, you, what is you need to do. But the reality is it comprises of the conversations you're having with each other and yeah. really getting to the number of driving outcomes in those discussions. So another thing that he did very well, and this is really a time saver, is that you just talk to people about what they need to deliver and how you measure their success in that process. That's a way of saving time. So the conversations you're, you're, you're having with your people are orientated towards the right outcomes as well. And that helps. That's, that helps a lot, actually. I, I agree. So... Uh... You mentioned that uh, onus is on the CEO. So the onus is on the CEO to take a lead in change management efforts. Who do you think did a great job of that? Like, do you recall someone doing that pretty awesomely? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I mentioned that the, the CEO that I had worked with uh, for the last uh, number of years, over 10 years ago, and then I've been in uh, his business for the last um, uh, four or five years, in the last 10 years, um, doing, doing work. He, he was a fantastic uh, leader and... Uh, one that I, I feel that, um, uh, you know, they did a fantastic job transforming his business. There are other leaders as well. And I think one of the more recently working with a nonprofit CEO, he came into that business when it was uh, was in the middle of transforming. And he gave the organization a new sense of renewed purpose because transformations go through dips. Hmm. They start off with high energy and then uh, there's a dip, there's a low performance. And people get incredibly anxious yeah. when they're deciding what is it that they're, where do they fit in in the future? And and in that moment when people start to think about that, the organization and the uh, grounds to, it risks grinding to a halt because people become protection driven. Yeah. So the CEO that can, that can work through that challenge and continue to motivate people and drive their energy in the right direction is something that is very challenging, but it's something that actually is the role of the CEO today. Yeah. And I, you know, the, the nonprofit organization that I worked with recently, he had that ability to be continuously upbeat, to, 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 to line the people into the right um, outcomes and drive their energy into the program and hold it as well. 
and put in place cadence around that as well. Yeah, and uh, I guess uh, we could find examples all over, all around us. Uh, you know, if 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 I re- may recall, you know, when when this shutdown, COVID triggered shutdown happened. So yes. maybe uh, job of the CEO. Is, is also to just, you know, sense what's going on in the minds of his people and just proactively, you know, communicate about that. So I remember a CEO, you know, just shooting an email that, hey, nobody should panic. We have, you know, enough capital, enough reserves to even sustain you for two years, you know, but that doesn't mean we should get lazy. So uh, the the thing I liked about that was that he kind of immediately sensed what might have been going on into the minds of his people. And he just, you know, communicated that. And that's an ability to listen hmm. and really understand as people and what, what, what motivates them and get under the covers and, and respond that way. So you need to have a level of empathy to be f- effective in today's world. And pe- people, people are, are, are um, you know, we're working in, a, in an environment today where people want more autonomy. They want to be able to do work. They want to do interesting work. And it's being able to, to sort of nurture that enthusiasm but also give them interesting things to do and the ceo's role is actually to figure all that what well, ceo and their management team is to figure all that stuff out yeah and, and uh being being understanding that you know the grass from the grassroots vibes of the business right through to the senior executive floor staying grounded is so important and mm. uh and i think that's a challenge for a lot of ceos to do so but those that do that are actually the ones that are more effective yeah and and if we just flip this situation you know 180 degrees and then there are people who are who block the roads you know and you also mentioned that in in kind of the paper as well and we kind of see it in the real world as well so what's your advice when people become roadblocks of a transformation program yeah i mean I, there's a number of different ways to address that and i, I would start by saying that some people resist change because they don't see where they belong in the outcome of that change process. Mm. And they become resistant and they start to block things. Other people resist change simply, and, and, that, and then it's the job of the change uh, of the CEO and the leadership team to bring that clarity to people. Because once you do, it starts to melt away. The resistance will start to melt away. So when we're looking at uh, how we deal with um, roadblocks, um, people roadblocks, we break them up into a very simple uh, analogy, which is the net promoter view of the world. We've got, you know, advocates, neutrals and detractors. Mm. And you're managing your stakeholders from that perspective. Uh, your job is to is to actually look at the detractors and understand why are they behaving the way they're behaving? What are their beliefs and, uh, and what are their concerns? And you can remove some of that purely by, as I said, really mapping out what their future is like in this organization and getting the right discussions from their line management down into those individuals, that will get rid of a lot of the concern, but it won't get rid of all of it. Yeah, not all of this. Um, and for those that are just simply are just unmovable, it is important to make tough decisions and actually decide, well, well maybe their, their future doesn't belong in the organization. And, uh, and and for them to sort of help, help them realize that and and give them other uh, alternative options. And that is an important step. So you can't avo- you can't avoid that as well. But it's never as big as the initial problem. It's about it's about managing, and you can never over communicate. Yeah. In, in in transformation, it's really important. So, uh, going back to uh, you know managing vendors. So, you from a consulting you know 
background and you know you you work as kind of a maybe a middleman or a, or a, a one who insulates you know the client from <laughs> technology vendors so how do you how do you manage that relationship and how do you make sure that you get the best deal for both of the parties yeah i mean it's no different to to getting setting the game up the right way i mean there there are certain there are certain relationships with businesses that are set up to be competitively driven and they can drive the wrong sets of uh, motivations on both sides of the table um which can actually cause a problem in the uh, in the ability to get work done you know as a as an organization um everybody needs to everybody needs to win in 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 a transaction or in a deal and it's about going into the it's about going into the discussions with that framing in mind right and not not every organization that i've worked with has that framework uh, or that mindset of how they want to deal they want to drive the best deal they can get hmm. and they want to try and squeeze margin out of the transaction and actually drive drive what they would perceive as a good deal for the corporate uh, or for the organization the, the buying organization that always uh, is is becoming less of a uh, people are realizing that's not the best model actually to do business i agree and maybe the, the, there's some benefit in leaving something on the table for the other party yeah, yeah. i mean i know we mentioned this before but uh, the work we did around the construction um mm. uh, working with experts in the construction industry it's fortunate enough to have have uh, have that experience over a couple of years mm-hmm. the that 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 work um so dealing with mega projects so these are projects over 1 billion in size and the leaders and the, and the experts that we spoke around that one of the big issues that they said is that in that industry and it's an industry that has not had changed it's been slow to drive productivity change uh, compared to others but in that industry it's really important that they drive a different relationship between the owners which are the buyers of these services and the contractors which deliver these as well so mm. There's an acknowledgement that that is the way the organization needs to change. The collaboration is critically important at, at, at an expert level uh, for people who are spending vast millions of euros on, on hiring in consulting services, uh, design services and, uh, and uh, build, um, building solutions for that. There's an acknowledgement the game needs to change on both sides of the table. It's not an easy one to change. Right. It's not I an easy, it's a thorny issue, actually. It's a very thorny issue. Thorny issue. Correct. So uh, going into the type of work that you do, so are there any kind of frameworks that you kind of use to manage change or do they really depend? Of course, they do depend on the situation, but a, a meta framework, what you may say, uh, to to manage the accountability and restructuring and transformation programs. Yeah, there are a number of ways to, to, to establish a transformation program. And, uh, you know, setting it up the right way is critical, is really, really critical. Uh, and the frameworks you, do, you use for that, there, there, there are a number of different um, um, frameworks and methodologies in the market that are relevant. The one that I have been trained on that I, I deeply value is a methodology called commitment-based management. Mm, great. And what that does is it looks at the world, a set of conversations as a as a set of potential commitments. And it looks at the flow of uh, in, the, the conversation goes through a certain structure. And if it lands well, it lands with a commitment where two people agree to, to a shared outcome. Mm. Uh, you've got a customer performer in that relationship. Um, 
And I think that's really important as well in business to 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 actually make sure that you have um, action takes place when there's commitments made between two individuals. It's a simple view of the world, but it's very effective. And it's a framework that I use time and time again in terms of working out, uh, working with customers and working with my own team and driving uh, clarity of purpose and, and, and outcomes. So th- th- that's really important. Uh, I mean, that, that idea that you can bring performance accountability to bear is, is really important as well. And that, that accountability sits within the, uh, sits, sits within the commitment, frankly. Now, that's a very nice way to see actually kind of simple but effective because uh, most often what I've seen is or what I've read is that, you know, the default is falling into pretty detailed, you know, SOPs and stuff like that. But on top of that, there should be a commitment made. Yeah, it's really an interesting one. I mean, a contract is a commitment, by the way, but it's but but a commitment is between uh, a a buyer and a and a, uh, a vendor is is really about to, to the individuals of those uh, to that those two parties agreeing on a shared outcome in exchange for whatever it could be money or an exchange of some sort of exchange of value and it's you know the concept is quite simple but it has a profound impact on business when it's executed quite well yeah and, and the reality is is that most organisations quickly drop into the detail too quick. And it becomes about managing managing the the activity. It's about managing uh, aspects of the detail, but not necessarily going back to the heart of it. Yeah. Which is what are the, what are we promising to do together? And that's so important in business as well. And it and organisations are designed some way to actually avoid the ability to reach that simple agreement. Right. That's that simple outcome that you're driving. I I kind of uh, really like this aspect because. Uh, you know, you might say contract is between the corporate, you know, corporate versus corporate and commitment is like, you know, people to people. You know, you look into into the eye of the other person and you say, yes, we are committed to do that. There is there's a sense of personal um, yeah. skin in the game when you make a commitment, Agreed. which brings with it discretionary effort and, and a sense of uh, go, going the extra um going the extra mile to make it happen as well. And your identity is attached to it. It's really important. If you do that, then you're, you, you, you're, if you can get an organization and a group of people to do that, your probability of success is, is, is uh, exponentially increased. Yeah, and I'm, uh, I kind of am segueing into the point that I, what I've seen is that uh, taking a mission-oriented approach, like I was just uh, watching a documentary the other day in which there was a, men- you know, there was a large project that, armed forces, you know, uh, you know, uh, carried out. But the way they carried out was not like this, that, okay, we're going to go into the nitty gritties and each details. Of course, they had to be done later. But the way they say is like, hey, you are responsible for executing this. And that's like, you know, kind of really empowering sort of gesture. Yes, it is actually. And it's, um, I, I keep going back to the same question about actually, um Accountability and responsibility, actually, two things are critically important. And I know we're going back and we're talking about transformations, but I really feel that if we're going to help an organization genuinely transform, mm. and I don't use those words lightly, mm. then there has to be a, a set of outcomes and a set of commitments that are, that are, that are designed between the, uh, the, the, all parties to this. Second part of that is that the accountability needs to reside with the CEO and with the leadership team, mm. um, and and 
that's a critical component in ensuring that there is a, a an honest discussion taking place as you move through these uh, the, the journey to transform because it, it, it will it will go through um, lulls it will hit roadblocks as we discussed um, but you need to go back to the basics yeah and holding that holding that central is really important so and what have you seen particularly playing out the most when transformation programs fail or they go you know haywire <laughs> It's a great question, actually, and um, um, I, I, I've been fortunate enough to help a, a couple of uh, uh, a number of transformations which yeah, have been. I read about that, and they they needed to go to a recovery process, and we do the typical work, which is really understand why it's landed and arrived at the place it has got to. So we do our discovery and diagnosis, and we interview people, and we like to interview people not just the ones that are cheerleading and put out in front of you, but we like to go deeper and interview a lot of uh, people that may not be the client's preference for you to see because there's some ugly things that happen when you get down to people in the organization that are feeling a lot more pain and are probably a lot more raw at the edges of the of the challenge. So what we discovered actually uh, is that it's never about the technology. It's never about the the process not being well articulated, although there is some issues about execution and execution discipline that are worth um, you know, exploring and uh, causing problems. But it generally is down to individuals and people. So, so yeah. what we discover is actually, and, then, and then a couple of, I'll give you an example. A number of years ago, I was working with a, a I came in to have a look at a, a core system that was being implemented into a utility company. And they had a... Uh, a problem which was, was which was dressed up with saying the SI is not performing. Mm. That was the way it was presented. And we did our diagnosis and our analysis of that problem. And we realized actually the problem was not the original uh, uh, diagnosis. That was something very fundamentally different. Mm. And it was all boils down to the language they use. And this is really important about listening. So when I talked to the, uh, to the, to the customer service teams that were looking to accept the project on the other end, they kept saying this is a business. This is a business uh, um, sponsored program. We're responsible for ensuring that we're successfully adopting it, and we're going to make it happen. And um, when I spoke to the uh, IT organization, which was which had this, uh, which which this SI was reporting into, they were saying the same thing. This is a business orientated project. They're responsible for making sure it's a success. But when you delve beneath those two simple languages that they're using, one would assume that it's a, that there's an alignment happening here. Hmm. But the reality was is that the IT folks and the SI were saying, hey, the business guys haven't a clue what they're doing, but it's not our problem, it's their problem. <laughs> Which manifests itself in a whole load of problems and how the governance of the organization and, and how that program was working, which we needed to change. And the, and the, and the business guys are saying, hey, we're writing the check so therefore, they've got to do what we're telling them. Yeah. And uh, why aren't they doing what we're telling them? So there was a real disconnect. And the language they used was the same language. And it could have been interpreted at a very surface level as that they're aligned. But alignment is critically important. There was a misalignment there between the two communities in that program. And it was a mess. Mm. And the project needed to go through a restructuring. The governance needs to be reset. And a new set of commitments needs to be designed for it. And we, we pushed it through to... To, you know, once we got to that 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 diagnosis, which is simple, it wasn't the SI that was failing. It wasn't that it was actually this relationship that was broken, and the language that was becoming, um, and the commitments that people were making to the program that needed to be fundamentally changed. 
So that was a simple example of of a of a of a language that people are using, which was driving, uh, which was masking a whole lot of um, beliefs and a whole lot of behaviours that underpin those beliefs in the program that needs to be addressed, right? And and the way you explain it appears that it was a surface level, you know, alignment, but deep down it wasn't there. Correct. And there was an awful lot of, um, um, you know, this program was two years in 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 in, um, in delivery at this point. So, a lot of those a lot of those beliefs and behaviors were embedded in the people that were working either side of that transformation, and that that was uh, that's what we needed to address. We need to change all that. Great. Yeah. So, uh, going back to your, you know, engagement with PMI, I guess what what I see is that you have been involved with PMI heavily. So, can you explain that and like what has PMI done in the construction solution space? Yeah. Look, I, I've been fortunate enough to be to 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 have worked with PMI for two years as a strategic advisor, and we've done a number of big programs with them. One was the whole citizen development um, development of the uh, citizen development canvas. And that was a fantastic uh, piece of work where we explored on their behalf whether there was a marketplace for building an, an agnostic uh, framework to help organizations scale, adopt and scale citizen development of their business. And it was a great project to, 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 to be involved in. Uh, we had a really fun time doing that. The other program that we worked with with citizen development was all around uh, the construction industry. The... Um, the construction industry suffers uh, a lot of pain points in productivity. It has an average of 5% margin net in the industry. It's a highly competitive in, uh, industry. PMI was servicing a lot of their needs through the PMP program and offering training training to help project managers understand how to manage programs better. But they acknowledged, uh, based on some analysis that we did and some study of the industry, that there was a bigger game to play here about helping the construction industry drive better outcomes in projects by becoming much more deeper and, and, and uh, involved in what happens inside one of these large mega projects, hmm. how you re- re- reorganize around that, what the beliefs are. So we worked with PMI. We brought partners to the table as well. Um, the CII, the Construction Industry Institute, became par- uh, part of the uh, expert panel. Uh, we also brought in the, uh, the, construction, the Lean Construction Institute as well. So two other parties came in. And we spent time with experts over a period of, of um, 12 months, really understanding how we drive programs of change and started to document that into a set of training programs as well. So, I, and do you see uh, a similar stuff happening in construction yet or not? Like, we've seen IT has moved from a CapEx to an OPEX model. Like, it's, you know, fast moving towards that model. You know, no CapEx, OPEX. So, is, is there a similar thing happening in construction or is it really hard still? There's a few interesting developments happening in here where there's the development. We, we talked to one um, uh, expert um, organization, which sits on the, uh, they're, they're a general contractor, and they're investing a lot in digital, uh, what's called the digital office. Mm-hmm. And the challenge with construction when it comes to harmonizing around us, uh, um, to, drive, to drive efficiency into a, into a large uh, construction program, there are a lot of coordinations, uh, missteps that create waste. Mm. And that waste um, manifests itself in per supply chain and goods arriving late or not arriving in time uh, in manufacturing of those goods as well. So it becomes upfront planning becomes critical. 
Um, but it also manifests itself in in in, in uh, on site through um, simple coordination mishaps. Hmm. So so getting technology to drive uh, to solve that problem is an interesting um, development in construction. Hmm. There are a lot of people involved in construction. It's very manual intensive. I think it's 13% of GDP globally is produced through construction in the industry itself. It's a, 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 it's a huge employer around the world as well. Yeah. But solving that problem around productivity and driving value into an, into a, into a project requires the uh, the organizations to work through or technology that will help. Installing that system of that is through the technology Digital office can be established, and some organizations are starting to think about installing that as a reasonably new development. But it also takes a commitment from the owners who are writing the checks for these large programs hmm. uh, and the and the and uh, their partners. So the design uh, consultancies and the general contractors all need to reach a different way of working to enable, enable success there as well. Okay, great. So this takes us to our, our point that, you know, are there any... Un- untold truths about transformation programs that you, you that you have kind of seen playing out now you know oh gosh i mean that's a good <laughs> um it's a good question actually i mean i mean I, I touched on this on the article about the bias uh the biases that exist and i think that's becoming more obvious as and it's becoming a little bit more common knowledge as well actually at the time that was a few years ago when i wrote that article hmm. um so what is it well, people, people, um, it's very hard. What, what I'm seeing, what, 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 there's a shift happening, but historically what has happened is, is that the transformation and the, the capital invested into transformation happened sometimes without doing the proper due diligence. Hmm. And then everyone gets wedded to, there's a lot of um, personalities attached to that decision. Re-examining that and, and, and saying, well, perhaps that's the wrong program is set up on the wrong premise or it's not going to deliver on its financial benefits. Mm. Um, it's very painful for the uh, sponsors or those that have come to that belief to allow themselves to seem to be failing. And this is like a, a, a mindset and an organizational cultural concern. Mm. And so they go on and they, and they soldier on regardless and then they'll do window dressing. There's mm. so much money wasted on that play out in 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 transformation that needs to be addressed and that's what i'm saying that's where the that's the untold truth that's you know that's the reality of it so so how do you invest the people's identity gets attached Hmm. to a transformation and when it starts to you know get into trouble and a lot of them do a lot a hell of a lot of them do it's how do you actually um Stop window dressing and start addressing the real issues of the program. And some of that means to, you need to have a culture of trust where you say, hey, I'm making mistakes here. Mm. I'm okay. And, and not getting fired for being that honest as well and not having that sort of, that, that's important. You know, so that is a whole cultural transformation that needs to happen in order to stop this, the wasted money that goes into, into these um, large programs. That yeah. takes courage. No, that's, that's a truly transformative thing to say you know that we are making mistakes and 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 I'll, I'll segue a bit you know uh you might have you know like who we do follow Elon Musk like you know he 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 talks a lot on his Twitter so uh, when you go through his kind of tweet deck you know they, whenever they make mistakes he's not you know, he might be trying to, you know, recover hard from them, but he's not too shy to, you know, kind of not, 
you know, let it reveal out in the public that we are having production problems, our deliveries are going to get late, or, you know. And by the way, I read Tesla's kind of, you know, annual report. And frankly speaking, they it was a lot less commitment-oriented than other companies say. So they, they do say that, okay, we'll, we'll ramp up the production, but we are not making promises. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I, hadn't, I haven't done, I haven't looked at their annual reports. Yeah. Yeah. So to your point that definitely everyone makes mistake and it's not as lethal as it's perceived to be to acknowledge the mistake. Yeah, I mean, the, the, we're definitely seeing a trend towards breaking transformations back from being these mammoth multi-year, um, you know, let's do a, a strategy that takes a, a long time, then let's do a, a, a design and organizational design and then let's go and execute upon that as well. We're moving in a world that, and I guess we're learning a lot as well from from digital native organisations that are moving without. They don't have the the uh, in, they're not encumbered by legacy systems, so they can move a lot quicker. But we're learning from them a way of transforming that is much more agile. It's much more experimental. It's much more um, acceptable to to try and to just you know and to learn and to to improve that that philosophy of working is uh it still is a long way to go in business today a long way to go i think we're only starting it and some 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 uh industries that have as i mentioned earlier some industries that are regulated highly regulated industries find that as an anatomy to try as a as a as a as a management style or as a leadership style to allow that to persist is very much against the grain of what everything they know which is to protect risk and it's managing so so i think we've a long way to go on that journey yeah and uh, to that point, uh, and what have you seen playing out? Like, okay, so it's easy for you to go in a meeting and discuss the top level staff or, or getting the commitment from, from the CEO or the top management. How do you see that the rank and file should be, you know, co-opted or, you know, bought into that program? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that I, look, I've always felt that getting the CEO's commitment is, is really important to set the, the game up the right way and for them to stay committed and be reasonably hands-on. But the reality is you've also got to mobilize the um, the operational teams and the frontline teams. And one of the things that excites me about um, low-code, no-code is that it, it is giving that subject matter expert the ability to automate a business process or to change a, a customer experience. And it's it's reasonably new as a technology, and I know Agile Point have been in that space uh, for some time now. But I I do feel that that ability to 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 uh, empower uh, the expert in the business to 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 make that change, to improve that process, to to improve that customer experience is really important, actually. And it will unleash a lot of productivity gains as well. And the technologies that exist today support that. They do. They support it inevitably. I know. So yeah, I'm very, I'm very hopeful for the future. I think we're actually only on the start of a major, a major change in how right. organizations restructure and organize for the future. Yeah, I'm very excited by that. And I, and I think we're learning a lot as well. We're still we're constantly learning from learning how to do this better. So if 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 we talk about learning, what's your on your on your radar right now? You know. I'm fascinated by, and I, and I have to say I'm, I'm I'm new to this area, but machine learning and AI. I'm really fascinated by how that's going to drive, how data can drive 
and then and then we're producing a huge amount of data today more than we can ever uh, process and make yeah. sense of and I'm really interested to see where this goes as well in terms of driving uh, better experiences for uh, customers, in terms of driving better predictability, the personalization at the front end of a business. I'm really interested to see how it actually drives automation as well, what new roles emerge off the back of that, how the business model is being redesigned and will need to be redesigned in order to cater for organizations that are driving and leveraging data effectively. Yeah, and exactly. I think that's a, that's I think that's going to change. That's really it's a game changer. Hmm. That's a game changer. Okay, uh, to you to 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 FTI Consulting. Coming back to FTI Consulting, I saw it publishes some something it calls Resilience Barometer. You know, nice. and and when I went into the details of it, like it's a pretty huge survey. You know, kind of, you know. 80% or something like that of G20, big organizations in G20 countries. And it's it's a huge, like I, I've seen a lot of reports even from the World Economic Forum, but I think that's also an interesting report that FTI publishes, really Resilience Barometer. Yeah, we're very proud of this um, this work as well. We, we like to um, always understand what is, uh, how we help our like FTI stands for three things. We we manage uh, risk um, and we produce value. And uh, resilient organizations do those two things very well. And what galvanizes all of our services together, actually, that we've got five segments, is the ability to protect, enhance, and manage risk as well. So uh, the resilience barometer and creating a resilient organization is really a uh, encompasses all the things we spoke about, about the agility. Um, it talks about managing the both the reputational risk of an organization, but also internally restructuring to, in order to take advantage of, of what is out there in terms of what data can bring as well. So resilience and becoming more resilient is a very strong, uh, it's a simple story or a simple message, mm. but it drives uh, a, a way of thinking about how you can improve an organization going forward. Right. And and resilience, and, and when I read, I was kind of going through the report and the interesting thing that I found was that companies did acknowledge that they are being investigated, you know, and that's really hard thing to, learn, you know, read in other papers, you know, they, they did acknowledge they are being investigated or they will be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the reality is, is that with all this data that's being created today, it, it's obviously producing a lot more risk for ent- enterprise risk as a consequence of that. So, so being able to um, harness that data um, is one thing, but being able to sort of recognize that actually there's a lot more data, both corporate data being generated as well, but access to a lot more data as well. Careful about how you use that, the data privacy concerns around that, the I guess the policies that underpin the right way to sort of treat that information and that data that's there. Yeah, it's, it's, a new, it's a new area for regulation as well, and it's a new area as well. It's a new risk for a business to be able to manage it more effectively. Yeah, exactly. That's that's true. And yeah, so that was great talking to you around some important topics. And and it was it was pretty enlightening as well, because uh, I think the organization that produces something in form of a white paper or content, the content is as good as the organization, <laughs> if I might say, because if there's a real genuine discussion or, you know, work happening in an organization, it does translate into its content. And 
that was what I what struck me out regarding the FTI. And you explained it well as well in the beginning that what it stands for. No, really pleasure talking to you. And uh, you know, if there's anything uh, uh, else I can help with, uh, uh, clearly, you know, I think we're still we're still at the very beginning. Everyone talks about the Ford uh, Industrial Revolution as being where we are today. Yeah. And it's an interesting concept, but it also is an interesting view that in five years' time, if, you know, this is why I think learning is critically important. In five years' time, I have no doubt that we will have learned a huge amount more about how we run businesses better, hmm. how we support and enable the operating of a business or the operating model to change, the business structures will change. And there is going to be a lot more, there's a lot more value. Um, there's going to be a lot more roles, new roles in the marketplace that don't even exist today. And it's 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 an it's a you know it's an interesting place to be, but we are we're going to go through a significant change. As a father of four children as well, and one of them is getting ready to go to university. Great. Um, it's an interesting. Yeah, it's and a really I think it, it must be really interesting to see like uh, uh, the 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 one who's going to the university that their their mindset and their you know kind of preferences must be different than yours, of course, and. That would be interesting to see because I have two kids, you know, and what, you know, and I'll, I'll tell you, they don't learn much from us or from school. What they learn from is from YouTube and they are <laughs> crazy learners. You're so right. Um, yeah. And it's uh, look the same. My, my, my children are the same, actually. But the um, sitting down, trying to give him some guidance on what courses should be good for him. And he's reading through the, uh, the the content about 15 times faster than me, telling me to hurry up. He's getting bored. <laughs> True. <laughs> he's like, well, I, I'm still I'm still trying to understand this. And he's like, no, no, I'm finished. That. I want to get on to the next thing. Like, Come on. That... So they, moved, they have the ability to sort of skim, but just know what's important and take it in a lot quicker. And maybe that's just a generational thing. I don't know. Yeah, it's a generational thing. I'll, I'll just share with you that uh, my son is kind of, you know, he's 10 year old. And he makes a lot of this origami, what you say, things from paper. And he's crazy about it. And he's, but what I like uh, about him is that he's engaged. Like you don't need to, you know, tell him how do you make, you know, use of your time. He's pretty engaged. So I think that has, uh, and it might play out in the education industry, by the way, how people learn, you know, <laughs> it has changed. It's it has changing. Changed. It is changing, actually. And uh, it's a, it's an interesting dilemma as well for, for educational providers. Yeah, exactly. The universities, the establishment, um, and what people will learn and how they apply it in the real world as well. That's great. That's great. Okay, and I'll let you go. And it was wonderful talking to you and we'll stay connected. <laughs>